You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 306. When people ask me if I went to film school, I tell them no. I went to films. Quentin Tarantino. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft. It's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Bulletproof Script Coverage actually focuses on the kind of project you are and the goals of the project you are. So we actually break it down by three categories, micro-budget, indie film market, and studio film. There's no reason to get coverage from a reader that's used to reading tentpole movies when your movie is going to be done for $100,000. And we wanted to focus on that at Bulletproof Script Coverage. Our readers have worked with Marvel Studios, CAA, WME, NBC, HBO, Disney, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. Well, guys, today we have a special episode. We have on the show today author and journalist Andy Rausch. And Andy's written a book about the making of Quentin Tarantino's technically first feature film that never got released. That film is called My Best Friend's Birthday, and there's a version of it floating around the internet. It's about 25, 30 minutes, and there's been a lot of myth around what actually happened to that footage. Is there an existing cut somewhere? Somebody said, and I'm, and I'm not sure if it was Quentin or if it was somebody else, but said that the film was burned up in a lab accident and most of that film got you know, burned up and all there is is what was left. Well, we find out the truth in this because Andy got to speak to a lot of people that were involved in the making of that film, including Quentin. And he has an hour and a half long conversation with Quentin where, where Quentin really just lays it all out and He's really proud of that film, and he would like to see it come out one day, possibly, just to kind of get it out there, not to hide from its imperfections and its issues and sometimes amateur nature, because he was just starting out. He was just trying to figure out the form, and even then, you could still hear the Quentin Tarantino we all know and love. You could see some of the visuals there. You could see the beginnings of it, and it is so important in in cinema history to know what exactly happened to that and Andy spent years getting all these interviews together and really talking to people and finding out what the truth is so in this episode we are going to go deep down the rabbit hole of Quentin Tarantino's first unreleased film My Best Friend's Birthday so without any further ado please enjoy my entertaining conversation with Andy Rausch. I'd like to welcome to the show Andy Rausch man how you doing Andy? Hey, how's it going, man? I'm good, man. I'm good. Thank you so much uh, for your patience uh, on uh, for getting us on, the, getting us together. It's been it's been a minute, but we're here now. Um, it's been a little while. It's been sure. a it's been a little while, but all all good things, you know, all good things come to for those who wait to get this thing together. Right. So we're all here. Um, now, I, I was scanning the uh, the uh, the World Wide Web the other day, and uh, I, I came across your book uh, about the making of uh, Quentin Tarantino's first quote-unquote feature, uh, mm-hmm. and I was fascinated that someone took the time to dig into the unreleased uh, film, My Best Friend's Birthday, which I've spoken about a bit on the, on the show, and I've also you know, written a couple articles about it, and, done, and, you know, just, and there's, a, there's some of it available online to, for people to watch and stuff, but uh, I really love to get into the, into the weeds on it. So um, for those who don't know um, where Quentin got his start, can you kind of talk a little bit about his origins and getting into, into this project? Okay, well, one of the things that the book focuses on is some of the, the even earlier projects that Quentin had worked on. Um, My Best Friend's Birthday was the first one that he directed, but he'd helped out in, on some other films. It was basically the 
essentially the same crew that worked on those. And so really it evolved. So he worked on, these are no budget movies shot in people's backyards on, uh, you know, basically on video. And, um, and these were in the early eighties and like, there's one where, you know, Quentin's the bad guy and everybody talks about it, but there's no, you know, they were like, he's great, but you know, there's no, there's no, uh, footage left of it. And, um, you know, that was, I believe, directed by Al Harrell, which is a member of that group that everybody talks about. Al's passed on now, but, um, you know, and I think that was kind of a mix of, uh, as I'm trying to remember, um, it was kind of like Assault on Precinct 13 meets something else. I can't even remember. Uh, but then, like, Quentin and I think Craig Hammond, who co-wrote My Best Friend's Birthday, were the bad guys, if I remember correctly, in that movie. And um, and they don't exist so, anymore? Know, and, and they don't, like, none of those footage exists anymore? No, not as far as I know. And he worked on some other stuff here and there. Um, so he ends up getting them, well, not really even getting the money. He ends up getting the desire to make his own movie. So he talks to his friend, Craig Hammond. They come up with this idea. So they're going to make a movie. They have no money. Quentin works a minimum wage job as everybody knows at video archives. Um, and they have no money, but they have this, this desire. So Craig writes a script at the time for My Best Friend's Birthday, which is a very, very short script at the time. And it's a, a screwball comedy, which that's one of the things I find interesting here is that not only could I, with this book, chart the evolution of Quentin as a filmmaker, as a writer, as you know a creative, but also, it's interesting because we we think of him as Mr. Gunn. You know, he talked about that one time. Everybody thinks of me as Mr. Gunn. He either does crime or he does Western, something where, you know, people are going to get shot and all that good stuff. And But this was a screwball comedy. So then, and so Craig writes a script. Quentin comes in and expands it somewhat, uh, rewrites it. But then they go out and they shoot, and they have to shoot piece by piece by piece. They're out stealing shots because they can't afford, you know, locations. They can't. And well, and what's funny, I, I'm skipping around, but mm -hmm. on the film that they shot before that war zone, um, there was a time when they were there's that's detailed in the story in the book. And it's very funny where they were stealing shots. And so they all have these guns and they're, you know, supposed to be tough guys. And there's a motorcycle and the cops show up and, and aim their guns at everybody and make them lay down on the ground. And what's really funny, and this is the great part about an oral history where it's all told in the dialogue, is that some of the people are like, you know, um, like Quentin's like, we weren't scared at all. And then someone else is like, we were all crying. And, you know, and it's just this completely different, these different takes on it. And an oral history is great because it gives you this Rashomon kind of story where mm -hmm. you have all these different perspectives, which which are different generally, even if it's something that just happened. But when you, you take a story that happened in the 1980s and you tell it, you know, you're going to get different versions of that. So anyway, they're making my best friend's birthday on Quentin's minimum wage salary, which on is film. insane. On film. There's, right. On film. Yes. They're shooting this one on film. And so they're just shooting it little by little over time. Uh, I guess a lot of the scenes they end up improvising or they take a nugget of what was in the script and they they come up with something new. So at the time, Quentin's acting teacher was Alan Garfield, who's in a lot of great films like The Stunt Man and, you know, things like Beverly Hills Cop 2, all kinds of stuff. And um, so he gets Alan Garfield to do a scene. He gets um, Brenda Hillhouse, who was one of his acting teachers from his first acting school to come and, and do this scene with Alan Garfield. And uh, Brenda, people will remember from, from Dust Till Dawn, she's the one that uh, they kidnap, and Richie kind of gets a little creepy with her. And, you know, when George Clooney's Seth comes back, there's blood everywhere, and mm -hmm. that's what's left oh, of Brenda. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. She's also in his ER episode, and she's the mother of uh, little Butch in the famous Christopher Walken I had a watch in my ass scene. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, he gets these. This is a, one of the most telling representative scenes of how they had to shoot with no budget. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. 
And now back to the show. So they needed for this scene, there's a bakery, but they, they don't have a bakery. So they shoot it in video archives when nobody's around. So then it becomes uh, a video store slash bakery, which no, that doesn't make any sense, but it's <laughs> funny because, you know, and, and I've worked on microfilms. I've worked on some, some shitty trauma movies and, you know, this is a thing you have to, you know, adapt, improvise, make these things work. And not only that, but um, they made Alan Garfield's character named Bill Smith after William Smith, the great actor who was one of, Qu and he was sitting on one of our movies, but um, he was one of Quentin's favorite um, actors. So it becomes Bill Smith's video store slash bakery. And, you know, and they do this scene and again, kind of representative. So Alan Garfield brings his dog. He's and Quentin's quote that he tells me for the book was, he's one of those guys. He's one of those, bring your puppy around, you know, those guys. And, and Quentin says it very respectfully because he loved Alan Garfield, but the dog gets into the case and eats the cake while they're, they're doing the dialogue scene. Then when they need the cake, the cake's eaten by the dog. And I mean, it's just a kind of a comedy of errors. Um, now you, you interviewed, you, you, and you actually interviewed Quentin for part of this book? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I had tried to interview Quentin for years. I met him in 1999 at, uh, when he used to do the film festivals in mm -hmm. Austin at Rick Linklater's um, yeah. thing there at the first Alamo Draft House. And I was working on, my first book was supposed to be about Quentin. And I think I kind of scared Quentin away at that time because... Um, Jamie Bernard was writing the intro and Quentin had a falling out with Jamie Bernard who wrote his first biography. So I kind of think what happened was he associated me with her and he didn't want to be involved. He was mm. very nice, but all of a sudden people were calling back saying, I'm not supposed to talk to you. And so I knew kind of what was going on. I kept working on the book on and off, um, did more books. I mean, I've got, 46 books out this year, I think. And, um, God bless you. <laughs> I don't have life otherwise, but, um, <clears throat> so anyway, and I was going to do this book on all of Quentin's films because at the time I started, there were two biographies. There was one by Winsley Clarkson and there was the one by Jamie Bernard, but I wanted to do a kind of a companion to the films, which is funny now to think because I started that in 1997 when all there was, was, you know, of, that he directed was Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown. Yeah. But then, you know, I was also going into True Romance, Natural Born Killers. God, Natural Born Killers. Bleh. And, yeah. um, <laughs> and you know, From Dust Till Dawn and uh, True Romance. So anyway, I worked on this book on and off for a million years. I pick up this book called um, Quentin Tarantino FAQ. Well, it's the same book. So I ended up just throwing that book out and... I took the interviews I had done with a lot of cool people like Monty Hellman and um, Roger Avery, Tom Savini. I went ahead and I put it out a few years ago. That was my first book on Tarantino. So that's called Conversations, Conversations on Quentin Tarantino. Right. And that came out in, I think, 2015, 2016. Now, with so I kept trudging forward and <laughs> and so they're how it all came together, man. So, all right. So you're, so they're starting to shoot this thing. And from my understanding, the lore is that they shot this over like a year or something like that or more. It was several years. I don't remember specifically. It was uh, a while. It was like on the weekends, whenever, time. whenever they can like grab enough money to buy some film stock or some short ends to go shoot this thing. Right. Well, and people's hair would change. Right. It would become longer, shorter, longer, you know, um, you know, all of these different things, uh, you know, the lead actress, she moved away and then they had to have her come. She was teaching. They had to have her come back. <laughs> so it, it, it's, I mean, I've heard this story a thousand times from so many filmmakers that I've interviewed over the years. But hearing it that Quentin Tarantino started like that right. is so it's so much it's so much fun because, you know, in so, so many ways, you know, Quentin is arguably one of these mythical filmmakers he's he's one of right. you know he's he's one of the most interesting filmmakers of his generation let alone in all of film history so he's almost at that kind of like mount hollywood or a god on mount hollywood but to right. know that he started like us mortals <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting too it's always interesting to see how they got started because most people just think he just showed up 
with reservoir dogs and exploded. And that was the end of it. But it right. took a while to get there. Uh, now, when he was putting this all together, so they basically were financing this through Quentin's minimum wage job at a video store. Right. And I think some of the other people would occasionally chip in money, but it was pretty much just with his minimum wage job. And who and, and so who was to save up for a month or two to be able to rent the camera for a night? Then they'd shoot for 24 hours straight, you know, whatever they could write, you know, and on short ends. And right. And how did they edit this? Were they editing this on flatbed? Well, that's part of the problem. Uh, you know, so Quentin waits a long time to edit it because they had to, you know, they had to hire somebody to edit. So they hire somebody to help edit at one point. That didn't really work out well. Quentin ends up renting a flatbed and finding out eventually that the movie wasn't what he thought it was. And that's kind of the, we'll get there, I'm sure, but that's sort of the story of where the movie ends up being. I wanted to say two things about this book. One, I thought it was important because I wanted to show the evolution of him as a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. People think, as you said, that you just, somebody that's that gifted just evolves from the, you know, they just pop out of the womb and they're mm -hmm. fully formed. And that's not the case, you know, with anybody. I had seen, uh, there was a lot of talk about Stanley Kubrick's first film. Mm -hmm. uh, Fear, Fear, Fear Desire. Desire. Yeah. Right. And, you know, and, and Stanley tried to suppress that coming out later on. But it's important because, again, it's an, a documentation of his, like, it doesn't take away from the things he did later on. No. It only helps us to see his evolution as an artist. And so there was a time I tried to get Quentin for this book. I couldn't get him. I made my last plea and I said, I think uh, you probably want to suppress this, but you shouldn't. And here's why, yada, yada, yada. But it was interesting when I interviewed him, he said, no, I don't want to suppress this. I, Quentin still loves this movie. He knows it's problematic, but he loves it and he still has most of it. Um, the other thing I wanted to get to was this: the, what this book is really about. Because people think, well, how can a whole book just be about this movie? And that's true. So what this book actually is, is it in three parts. Um, the first part is sort of the biggest thing we've seen on Quentin's life and all of those people in his sphere leading up to my best friend's birthday. It's called, um, I think it's it's been a while since I wrote it. I think it's, it's something like the players come together. Mm -hmm. And what it is, it's, again, the most detailed look at uh, video archives, all of that. Roger Avery, and, you know, I interviewed all of these people for the book, including Avery, whom I've interviewed several times, and, and, and it's a really cool book, but it shows how they all met, and then, you know, how they get to a place where they're going to make movies. Um, then the second part is them making movies. So it starts out with all of the little movies they work on, and how they get to my best friend's birthday, and then kind of just a a blow by blow of as best anybody can reassemble uh, what that shoot was like, uh, as told by Craig Hammond, uh, Quentin Tarantino, Roger Avery, and all of the cast that was still alive that I could find. And then the third part looks at the existing script and, and it kind of with some running commentary and it kind of shows us what that movie might have been. Now, it's important to point out the script that is floating around, everybody always thinks when they find it, oh, I found the script, you know, and but the script that's floating around is not actually the script. It's the closest facsimile there is. But what it actually is, is when later on, when Craig Hammond optioned the screenplay to, to Don Murphy, which is a whole other mess that a lot of us probably know parts of, and this book details that. Well, um, what, what, so what was that? So they optioned this script to somebody else? Well, what happened was um, Don Murphy, who was Quentin's enemy, who was the producer of Natural Born Killers, they had had that big falling out over Natural Born Killers. He's the guy that Quentin, quote unquote, bitch slapped in a restaurant, and it ended up in a big lawsuit. So, so Don Murphy, bitch, like, excuse me, Don Murphy bitch slapped Quentin? Quentin bitch slapped Don oh, Murphy. That makes more so sense. So what Got everybody's it. consensus is, is <laughs> that the main reason Don Murphy wanted to option this script was to piss Quentin off. So he goes to Quentin's uh, old writing partner, who loves Quentin to this day and never wanted to screw Quentin over, but he went to him and he dangled money over his head. And We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. 
now back to the show. Rock and and Craig thought this was going to be great for everybody. He thought it was going to be great for him and Quentin. And it really didn't work out that way. Quentin blew up and, you know, they got into a fight. And, and that's documented in the book, too. But um, in everybody's words. But at that time, what Craig did was essentially take all of the things that they had improvised and wrote them into script form also. So it becomes this script that is sort of a kind of a weird bastardization of all of the, the forms of script that had existed and also the improvised scenes and with Craig actually writing little things to kind of link some of the scenes together that there was no link for because there were things that they ended up shooting that weren't in the original script. So it's kind of a, it's interesting to imagine what might have been, but we don't fully know what might have been. So then, so then, uh, but then eventually, obviously, Don Murphy did. So Don Murphy did get the, the, the rights to this to the script. He did, and there was a time when I knew Don a little, and I had asked him about the script, and he pretty much just admitted. I don't remember what his words are, and I don't want to get sued because he is a litigious guy. But he basically admitted to the effect that that was why he optioned it. He had said that it was never going to get made, and mm-hmm. I think it was known from the beginning it wasn't really going to get made. So, so then, just so in the in the in the in the timeline here, when my best friend's um, birth, my best friend's birthday is being shot, Quentin wrote True Romance and Natural Born Killers during this time, right? And those were originally one screenplay called The Open Road, which was something like a six hundred page Jesus. or five hundred page script. And what it was, was you had the characters, both of those are kind of similar thematically, right? Like true romance and natural born killers, where you have the man and the woman, some kind of criminal on the run. Okay. So in the original, the open road script, um, he has Clarence in Alabama from true romance. It's Mm -hmm. their story, but in the middle of they're doing these things, Right. also writing a screenplay and that screenplay mm-hmm. is natural born killers so it would go back and forth between as i'm told i've not seen that script. Right. i have no idea if it you never really even know if these things really exist you get bits and pieces of different people's stories but that's what it's supposed to be so so then natural born killers and true romance were <laughs> we're together, which I've never right. heard before. And by the way, I'm interested in seeing that movie. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to see this eight hour miniseries, essentially, <laughs> that, that would be. So, but then he broke those apart and sold those separately. And he got some money for those, if I'm, if I, from what I understand. Like it was the most money he'd probably ever seen at that point. Right. And I, I would still contend True Romance is one of his, it's one of my favorites of his. I, I love that Even movie. though, you know, he would have done different things than Tony Scott did. I still think it's brilliant in its way. And, you know, when I said thumbs down to Natural Born Killers, it's only because I think Quentin's original script for Natural Born Killers is great. But the thing that Oliver Stone made is kind of a mess. There are people that love it, love aspects of it. I think it's a huge mess. It's a big experimental student film with, you know, several million dollar budget. Mm hmm. But yeah, no, exactly. I would I would have been very interested to see the Quentin Natural Born Killer script uh, originally. But uh, what Oliver did was what Oliver did. But right, with right. but with that said, um, True Man's when they released the like ten disc, you know, master collection of Quentin's work, they included. Right, True right. Romance as part of his filmography. That's how much love he has for that film. And he actually does a commentary track on, right. on True Romance talking about what he just loved what Tony did. And I mean, the scene between Walken and, and Hopper, I mean, this is probably one of the best scenes in, in movie history. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. it's amazing. It's amazing. It, it, yeah, it's it's remarkable. I mean, it was absolutely remarkable. So, so he's making so during he's selling these scripts. So he's trying to get into Hollywood and trying to make a name for himself. And he he knows where he wants to go, but he's trying. He's he's struggling. When when right. did he actually? How old was he when he actually finally did Reservoir? Because he wasn't a young guy at that. I mean, young. No, he was it, in his thirties. I don't right. remember exactly. But he was in his early thirties. Me and I'm. <laughs> I don't even want to say I'm 48. So he's 48. And, you know, and so by that time he's in his thirties and I mean, God bless him. Good for him that, you know, he made that breakthrough. You know, it's funny. Another thing to talk about real quick is that 
True Romance went through a couple of hands, too, before it got made. Because Samuel Hedida was originally, the producer was going to make it as a low-budget film. And at one time, um, oh, what is his name? I can't think of his name. The the director of, like, Maniac and Maniac Cop, mm-hmm, William mm-hmm. Lustig. William mm-hmm. Lustig was going to direct it at one point. I tried to get Lustig to talk for the book, but I and I get it. He doesn't want to talk about it, I'm sure. But that would have been interesting because that would have been a whole other level of low budget and, you know, yeah, it, interesting it, to think what that movie would have been. Yeah, it's just, it's always very, it's kind of like, oh, it's like going back to Kubrick's and like, oh, it would have been interesting to see um, his Holocaust film. Uh, it right. would have been interesting to see his Napoleon. Like, you, you, right. you know, you see these amazing artists and you're like, oh, those are the, the paintings that never got painted uh, right. kind of thing. And now, so what, so with, with going back to my best friend's uh, birthday, so it's taken him a few years to get this thing together. He's edited it together now. Where, what happened to, I heard there was a fire, that part of it was lost. What was that story about? Okay, so the the story up until this book has always been that there was a fire, a lab fire that destroyed significant parts of the film. Now, as I'm proud of myself, I find out in this book that is not true, and even get Quentin to admit it. Okay. So what? Basically, the there was some stuff destroyed, but it was so minimal that it didn't change the course of the film. What actually kind of kills the film is it takes Quentin a long time. He's starting to. When he's editing it, he sees what he's got, you know, and he talks about it at length in the book. It's not what he thought it was going to be. He thought it was going to be like she's got to have it or one of these, you know, um, Richard Linklater kind of movie, this low budget indie thing. And and it's kind of a mess. And he's heartbroken and he's devastated. And. He says that the writers of the of the biographies kind of came up with the story that there was a lab fire, but other people involved with the movie say that he told them there was a fire kind of, I think maybe to just calm everybody down, get them off of the, the truth of the matter is it went on for so long. He's starting to to get some success. I don't blame him for eventually, you know, shelving it because even at its best, this movie would have never stacked up. It would have never fit on a shelf alongside you know, uh, True Romance, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, those movies. The script is brilliant. There are scenes of brilliance that are written by both, you know, Craig and Quentin together, each of them separate. There are some brilliant moments in that script. The dialogue is amazing. But what was being put on film wasn't. But Quentin learned from it. He learned how to direct actors. He learned these things. And there's a line that Quentin says in the book, and I'm going to screw it up, but I uh, we'll get to the eventual heart of it. Quentin says very proudly of himself, and rightfully so, he says, I'm proud of myself and I'm proud of this movie because you know what? Everyone else who would have made this movie and seen what it was after all these years would have given up. And I didn't didn't give up. I kept going and I let that fuel me instead of sitting around mourning the loss of this movie. And, And he's right. You know, he's absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, because uh, look, I mean, I've, I've been a filmmaker for 20 odd years. I completely I completely feel them. I completely like sometimes you look at stuff and you're just like, oh, this is it's this is not what was in my mind. I didn't right. get the, I didn't get the crew that I needed. I, I, I didn't have the skill set. My tools were not prepared. Um, when I uh, when I had Richard on Richard Linkletter on the show, he said one of the best lines I've ever heard about filmmaking. He says, eventually, hopefully your skill set will catch up to your ideas. And I was like, oh, and he also said, everything's going to take twice as long and twice, it's going to be twice as hard. <laughs> right, right. To both those are great, great, great lines. But it's absolutely true because when you come out as a filmmaker, you're just like all these ideas. And yeah, we'll get a techno crane here. And we'll swing the camera there. and We'll do this Scorsese shot here. and But you don't have the skill set. You don't have the tools. And Quentin, at that point in his life, he was basically a video store clerk honing his skills, honing what he had learned and, and taken in all throughout his life. Well, and one thing that's cool about this movie is that not only did he not go to film school, none of the people involved in this movie went to film school. As they all say, this was their film school. And I want to tell you how significant this movie is when you think of it like this. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. 
And now back to the show. Three, you know, three movie directors come out of this little shitty movie. You get Quentin, obviously. Roger Avery goes on. Craig Hammond goes on. He should have had a bigger career. But either way, he goes on. He, he makes Boogie Boy and he writes some action movies and stuff. I mean, three people go on to become professional filmmakers out of a $5,000 movie shot over several years in people's houses. It's it's no, it's it's insane. And now I have to ask now, there is an existing version of this floating around the Internet. How did that thing get out? And what is that? Well, there are only it, it's not the whole movie, obviously. It's 30 minutes. Like, it's 30 but minutes. What's like. funny. There's two different versions. One has uh, there's an extra scene with Quentin and uh, Craig talking kind of a heartfelt scene. And it's in some of them and it's not in others. Um, this was the exact version that they were showing around at one time to be their, you know, kind of a, like a real demo. Um, yeah, it was a demo. They had cut them. it up and they were they were showing it around trying to get jobs. Um, I've heard some speculation that you know uh, it might have been Russell Vossler or not Russell, but Rand, uh, their brothers, Rand Vossler, who ended up being the uh, associate producer on Natural Born Killers and worked on some other stuff, but um, really don't know. I mean, I know that uh, Rand has a lot of this stuff at his house. I don't know. Uh, he took pictures of the of the film reels to prove to me that it existed and sent it to me. Um, he has the film reels? You know, and it's interesting, the... and Quentin holds no you know grudge against whoever did release it. I think he's kind of happy about it. Well, yeah, I mean, because look at that, at the point he is in his, like, well, even when it was released, he, was, he had already done Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown. I'm like, you're good. Right. Like, at that you have nothing to be embarrassed about by that point. Yeah, I mean, when, when you make Pulp Fiction, you're pretty much, you got to pass for, for life as far as, like, other stuff that you might have done that's not particularly great because you are you are who you are. But so but I have to ask, who owns the rights to this thing? Because people are putting it out there. I've seen it for sale. In some places, right. obviously bootlegged versions. Um, I think it's definitely Quentin owns the rights, but I don't know. I don't think anybody's actually, you know, claimed it or anything. Quentin does say that he wants to maybe one of these days. Who knows? Quentin comes up with a lot of ideas of things he wants to do and make, and they often don't get made. And I get it. You know, he's got big ideas, but he's, he talked about sometimes he thinks he'd like to have somebody edit this together just for him to just have a version of the whole movie edited together. and. <laughs> and uh oh i was going to tell you this there's this great story where he talks about i don't he didn't say who the filmmaker was but he says he shows this famous filmmaker early on after reservoir dogs he shows him the footage of my best friend's birthday and the guy says what you should do and it's a foreign filmmaker and he says what you should do is you take this and you go out in a boat and you wrap this film up in some kind of food, cement and you throw it as far as you can into the ocean. And, and I mean, and, and it's funny, but Quentin is still proud of it. And he talks about how proud he is of certain scenes, especially the one with Alan Garfield, which was why I highlighted that one. But yeah. And, and, and I mean, it, this is a perfect candidate for a, cr a criterion collection one day. It like is. it's a perfect candidate for, for a release through criterion you collection. Know, it would be Perfect as an extra on one of those movies. I'd love to see that, you know. On, yeah. You know, the Criterions come out and they have all kinds of extras. That would be perfect. Right. And it also needs to be properly remastered, properly edited, right. properly mixed, all of these things. So so, there, so, the full movie exists in reels at this point. I think it's something like 98%, 95%, enough that you could put something together. But it's, ne but it's never been cut together never in a way – it's so basically there's a so basically the only thing that we've seen online is a demo reel that was cut together to kind of right. try to get gigs for Quentin and the other filmmakers. And that's right. why that exists. But the raw footage of that film sits in Quentin's vault somewhere right. where he could eventually, if he feels so inclined well, to recut. What's that. interesting is a bit, <laughs> I'm not sure how this works out because I believe Quentin has footage but then Rand Vossler has I believe all of the footage so it's really confusing as to and they don't talk anymore they most of these people had some sort of falling out at some point 
And I mean, it just, it happens, but yeah. egos get involved. I egos, get it. Yeah. You know, and yeah. egos, all of it. Um, but you know, so it is curious. I don't really know, you know, if there's two sets of the, I don't know. That's really, that's And Quinn never talked about that when you talked to him. Not really. You know, well, you know, what was great was when I talked to Quentin, he was in the editing room of, um, once upon a time in Hollywood, he okay. took a break he calls and we talked for an hour and a half and it's great. And I save it for the end because I don't want to make him mad because, you know, I mean, I, I, I need this. So I get to the end and I say, so, you know, I ask him about the fire and I tell him somebody's shown me a photo and stuff. And and he says, you know, um, well, you know, and, and he kind of tells me then he hang, we, we we end the call. He calls me five minutes later and he goes, OK, let me tell you. And he says, uh, the, you know, the biographers made up that story. I didn't, you know, and. So, I mean, I do love that, you know, he's concerned about about the image stuff, but Quentin's got to know he's well beyond that. No, it doesn't matter. He's secured his place no matter what. Oh, he's in cinema legend. history. Yeah. There's Even no if question. you don't like him, he's a legend. No, yeah, yeah. You could either you could either love him or hate him, but you can't you cannot say that he's not a filmmaker. You cannot right. say that he's not an epic filmmaker and that there's massive people who love him. His work around the world. He's probably the one that, I mean, other than, I think he probably is more recognizable in certain generations than Spielberg is now, but he's up there with Hitchcock and Spielberg and Scorsese. And, well, the and, fact that people that don't know movies know his name, they might not know what he's done, but if you say Quentin Tarantino, they go, ah, you know, and yeah, like Spielberg like and Scorsese, they know these names. Yes, like Hitchcock or Spielberg, like, exactly. you know. You know, even my mother, who's probably seen maybe one or two of Spielberg's movies, knows who Spielberg is. Right. You know, things like that. And, and same thing for Tarantino. Like, oh, I've heard that name. He's he's right. some, he's done something that, that's fat. That's absolutely fascinating. It's really great to kind of just see the origin. And I'm, I'm assuming the book goes in much greater detail uh, in this. Oh, but now how the relationship with Roger, Roger Avery, how was that that form? Because from my understanding, and I know this is a different movie. But when he came into um, Pulp Fiction, uh, Roger obviously is the co-writer of Pulp Fiction, but he he technically gets story credit, but not right. screenplay credit. I think, and again, this is what I heard because you know we're all all filmmakers are like gossip queens. We're like a knitting circle. Um, that Quentin asked him, "Can I get the screenplay credit? You get the story credit." But if we win something, you get, and that's why he's up there with them with the Oscar. What do you know about that? And how was, and how did that relationship build up? Start, did it start in my best friend's uh, birthday? Okay. Um, at, okay. So first they worked at my best friend's, or I mean, sorry, they worked at uh, video archives together. Uh, I believe Roger worked at another video store previously. And one of the owners of, of uh, video archives, I'm trying to remember exactly how that works. It seemed like somebody's father owned it or something. I don't know. But he had worked at the other one and ends up coming to this video store. And and he talks him into interviewing Quentin or, you know, to giving Quentin the job. And they talk about the interview in there where it's basically like he looks at him and says, you got the job. And, you know, um, so they become friends there. So they're making these movies. All these guys are hanging out at video archives. They become friends. These two are super tight. Um then when they make, uh, well, so much so they're so tight and their voices at one time are so much in sync, you know, that Roger Avery was the one that was brought in to rewrite the end of True Romance. When Tony Scott decided he wanted to make those characters live because they or at least Clarence dies in the in Tarantino script. Right. You know, he decides to make them live. Quentin refuses to write that scene. So they bring in Roger Avery. And, you know, because they at that time are in sync. I believe Avery gets brought in to write a scene for Natural Born Killers that got cut. It was the one with the, with the big twin brother uh, mm -hmm. muscle men, you know? So anyway, they're working on all these things together. This is where I'm gonna get in trouble. Um, okay, because there's a lot of talk about what they, you know, Roger didn't deserve the credit and this and that. If you see Roger's script, what was it? it was Pandemonium Which, Reigns. Okay. If you see his script for Pandemonium Reigns, it's almost word for word verbatim for the second act of Natural Born or of Pulp Fiction, which is the butch stuff, all of the pawn shop stuff.
We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. It's almost verbatim the same stuff. Okay. So, I mean, he absolutely deserves the co-writing credit. He deserves the story credit. I like Quentin's mom a lot. Um, you know, we, we're friends. She's actually the one that kind of set me up with Quentin. But, you know, she was telling me, oh, Roger, you know, he doesn't deserve the credit. And look, I, it's what my mom would say if I was, you know. Sure. But look, I'm not saying anything bad about either of them. They're both brilliant. They're both they're fantastic filmmakers. I They did finally make up last year. Oh, did I got they? scoop on that. I did an article for Diabolique uh, where Roger says, we just connected last week. And so they are friends again. I don't know if they'll work again, but they're friends. They were meeting up and stuff. And, you know, um, but again, there's no reason for either of them to be mad at each other. And there's no reason for anybody to be mad at me for telling it, because the truth of the matter is they're both brilliant. They both had a hand in it. I love the movie. I love both of their contributions. It, they do write, They or at least at one time, could write seamlessly, you know, kind of in the same voice. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a, which is very interesting because um, what was that uh, rules of it was rules of attraction right the right. yeah which was a which was a brilliant film I love rules of attraction uh, and you know Zoe was good too yeah I, oh yeah yeah Kelly Zoe forgot about that one yeah um, but but Roger Roger's dialogue is is fantastic Quinn's dialogue is something so specific and it is it's more stylistic. It it weaves itself in a way that it's so. That's why you could see that in my it's best friend. Musical. Friends. It has a cadence to it. It's it, it's beautiful. It, it is really a remarkable. Like even in my best friend's uh, birthday, you can start seeing sparks of that. There yeah. are scenes of that. You're just going, oh, there it is. I don't know what this right. other stuff is, but there's the Quentin that you could start seeing it coming out uh, in it. It, it, it is, it, it, there is just nobody, it's like, it's like listening to uh, Sorkin or Kaufman, you know, their dialogue and the way they w- write their movies are just so specific. Definitely. Yeah. Specific to or them. Or Mamet is another or, one. Or know. Mamet. Exactly. Uh, you st- yeah. Yeah. You start, I, yeah, you well, start listening to dialogue. The best yeah. monologue to me in, in my, in my best friend's birth. There's so many of these movies to keep together here. Right. But, um, the best style, there's a monologue in my best friend's birthday that is just brilliant. Where And I think it's just as good as his later stuff, where Quentin's giving this this long thing about how when he was, and it's absurd and it's so funny and weird. And he's talking about at four years old, he got depressed and he was thinking about suicide. And he's like, four years old, it's ridiculous. And I, I think he was depressed because he found out Eddie Cochran died. It's just this ridiculous thing. But... He gives this long monologue about how he turned on the television and there was a good episode of Partridge Family on. And the episode of the Partridge Family made him happy and he decided not to kill himself. And it's it's absurd, but it's just the writing is brilliant. It's already got the pop culture references from his early work. I mean, we notice he's gotten away from that some. Well, I I say that, but then uh, once upon a time in Hollywood just takes us right back to that. It's all pop culture, but. Well, I mean, like when you're when you, I mean, you can't do as much pop culture in Django Unchained and and Glorious or historical films, but when he's in modern times or even not even modern times, like still in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was what the sixties, right? Um, So, but you could still do pop culture within its its thing, right? I mean, yeah, it's I mean, it's what can be said that hasn't been said about Quentin Tarantino and about his work? It's it's remarkable, and that's why. I wanted to kind of dig into the weeds about this book and about his film because there is so much misinformation about there. And there's not really a lot of people, a lot of information about the film because no one has taken the time to go deep into it like you have. This is the reference for this film. I, I will say I'm incredibly proud of this. And I'm not I'm not somebody who's generally proud of their work, but I always in that way. I should be, but I'm, you know, but I always wanted to write about Quentin, but I didn't want to do something that had already been done 10 times. One thing was, was that, you know, in all of the other books, the biographies and stuff, it's like two paragraphs about that movie. That's it. Maybe two paragraphs. Right, right, right. And so I thought it was really fun to talk about that, but also to have him have them talk about some of the other early movie stuff. And that was kind of fun, too, because I'd never heard much of anything about at all about those, you know, Mm -hmm. um, 
so that was pretty neat, you know, and, and I am excited to be able to contribute to it. And and I think Quentin thought it was something special. And yeah, Quentin you know, likes like, Quentin the, likes the book. He likes the book, right? Yeah. Yeah, because he got a, yeah, I saw he gave it a nice little quote uh, as well. <laughs> the one thing I will say, I messed up something. I made his mother, Connie, kind of unhappy. And it was a mix up. I took a piece of information, like a little biographical detail, because I didn't want to reach out and bother people all the time. And I assumed that things in other people's books are going to be right. And again, not a knock, but I, I took this little thing about um, his, his family having these interesting hobbies. And one of them was like uh, carrier pigeons or something and archery. And come to find out those were before Quentin was born. And so they got it wrong in the other book, too. But, you know, um, now all in all, I think it's pretty, you know, it's, it's pretty good. And it shows us a real picture of who Quentin was. There's a lot in it about acting school when they were at the James Best acting school, when they mm -hmm. he and Craig met and uh, were taking acting classes. And we have, you know, two of their acting teachers in it talking about. Quentin's acting and how Quentin started writing his own scenes for them to act out. That was the beginning of of Quentin, the writer. And they said he would go to the movies and he would take a little bitty uh, flashlight with him and a pad. And he would try to write the monologues down so they could do them. And the, this is how this started. And he would try to write these monologues down out of these movies so they could, uh, you know, act them out in their scenes for acting class. But he couldn't write fast enough. So they would start as a monologue from a movie and he would just start making up shit and it would become this really bastardized kind of cool monologue that <laughs> like one of them was a Patty Chayefsky one from Marty, but it just ends up with all kinds of wild shit. And several people say, you know, it was even better than Marty, which I mean, I mean, it's just crazy. And that's what inspires him to become a writer, which. It's fascinating. Now, with, with why did he, what was his fascination with being an actor? Because he, I, I've, I mean, I've seen it's very well documented. He wanted to be an actor. He, that was his. He thought that was his way in, and he he did get that little spot in the Golden Girls, uh, which was <laughs> as an Elvis impersonator. An Elvis impersonator, yeah. yeah. How, what, what did did he ever talk to you a little bit about that, or did, in your travels no, did you hear we, about that? We didn't that? really go much into it, but um, I mean, we did talk about the acting class and. Um, but, you know, I think he I don't know. You know, I think at the time he thought that's what he could do. He maybe wanted to be an actor and a director. I don't think he I don't think he just knew he could be a writer. And I think the doors really opened up because of his writing. And, you know, once he found that he was on fire. And I will say this. Everybody says, you know, he's a bad actor and blah, blah, blah. And I know at times his acting can be questionable. But I don't give a fuck what anybody says. He's brilliant. And from dusk till dawn, he's perfect. And mm -hmm. I've heard people make shitty remarks. I don't remember who it was. Somebody said, oh, well, he's 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 perfect when he plays a crazy man. Or, you know, it was somebody trying to diss him. I don't remember. But yeah. the thing is, he can really act. The thing is, if you look at his own movies, I, and I contend that a lot of times he's the worst thing in his own movies, his acting. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of that comes from him taking away, him trying to direct and act at the same time. Generally, when he's acting, he's directing other people's performances. He can look at them objectively, but you can't really look at yourself objectively. That goes out the window. And I think that's why you see him give better performances in other people's things than he gives in his own. Yeah. I saw, and not that those are always perfect either, but. Yeah. And no, I, I think I saw, I saw a video where he was pitching. It was like a small little video. I think he did. I forgot what it was for, but he was pitching the Muppets. A, a movie idea or something like that and i was like wow that's that's actually brilliant the way he be i mean he's playing himself but it right. was it, but it was quite brilliant about it no his i mean look when you because i know a lot of people you know say why did he cast himself in pulp fiction i mean and arguably he's the worst actor in that crew but i'm like you've got sam jackson john travolta harvey keitel Tough, tough room. Most tough people room. are going to be the worst person in that room. I mean, <laughs> it's a tough I'm room. sorry that what I would have liked to have seen was at one time, Tony Scott and him were going to make a version of Elmore Leonard's kill shot. And oh. it was going to have, uh, he was going, it was going to be him and De Niro. And if you read the novel, they're interesting characters because De Niro is a hitman. He would have been like an Indian hitman, which would be kind of interesting. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. 
And now back to the show. And it named Rainbird. And then Tarantino would have been this guy named Richie Nix. And I really think he could have played that role really well. The project went by the wayside and we'll never know. But I think that would have been really cool. Is there anything in, in early in Quentin's early times that he was starting to write or just never kind of like scripts that he went that didn't get it or projects that you heard that he wanted to do and couldn't get done early, like early stuff? There were like little Westerns and there was something about Elvis and there were, you know, things that he wrote. Um, there was a really neat I used to have it a long time ago and I lost it in a flood. But there was a, he had written a treatment early on before. And it was like a, it was his version of a John Woo movie. And it was like oh, about these guys robbing this hotel like in Hong Kong. And then it ends up with all these these big Mexican standoffs and stuff. And it was neat. Um, a lot of stuff like that, you know, like little odds and ends um, in the book. Linda Kay, who was one of the actresses in the movie and also has these really two tiny parts in Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction in one of them, she's shot woman. In Pulp Fiction, she's shot woman. Like, she's the one that gets shot when, uh, in the middle of the street, when... Oh, the one that, uh, yeah. Uh, Ramps is trying to shoot Bruce Willis. Yeah, yeah. And in the other one, she's shocked woman. And she's the one that, um, I think they steal her car. Or I can't remember. It's one of the things after the robbery. And But anyway, she tells a story about when she was typing up Quentin's scripts early on. And she talks about this very Hitchcockian scene which the way she describes it is brilliant that Quentin had come up with and he, he didn't want to, he didn't know how to show this violence or make it look real. And so there, it, there's people arguing and the camera turns slowly and you can hear this record playing and I'm going to screw this up a little bit. And it just goes in this big 360 and you hear this couple screaming at each other and fighting and, and then it stops. And then you just hear the, the middle of the record goes, and when it comes back around, there's just blood everywhere. And I mean, it, it's a lot neater the way she describes it because you can get a visual picture of it. So, I mean, I think that he always had cool ideas from the get go. Well, it was like Reservoir Dogs when he just pans off the ear cutting scene. Oh, right, right. right yeah, he just pans off of that. And then he's like, no, nah, that's that's the shot. Yeah. Instead of actually right. us seeing it, it's much more disturbing if we don't see it. But that's Hitchcock. That was that was a Hitchcocking right. a, a tool. Uh, no, it, it's 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 pretty remarkable, um, you know, talking about Quentin and his early his early works. And uh, you know, obviously, I'm a fan, and I'm I'm very grateful that you actually sat down. And how long did it take you to write this thing? Man, I'm grateful. It took <laughs> me. Man, I'd been trying to get an interview since the '90s with him, and he did some fact checking for the first book that fell apart before he found out Jamie was involved and disappeared, but. You know, so it took a long time to get that. And then once we did get it, I couldn't get a specific time. Then I like I got a time because he was editing. He was yeah. wrapped up in this editing. So he sets a time and I wait and he doesn't call. So then the next day I go on a date and it's my first date with the woman I end up marrying becomes my wife. Now right. we're on our first date. I'm on, on the how does it work? No, the first night we go to this Italian restaurant. I've got my phone turned off because I don't think anybody, I sure don't think Quentin's calling. We hadn't set anything up. Well, Quentin calls like three or four times, which is great for him for persistence and not giving up. And he was very nice. He's like, this is Quentin Tarantino. I thought we were, you know, did you want to talk? And <laughs> so then I'm thinking it's never going to happen now. So I'm still trying to set something up. We go on another date the next night. We lived in separate towns. I'm on the highway. It's nighttime. And Quentin called. And I'm in the car and I'm like, man, I, I'm so sorry. I really would like to record this. And he's like, oh, it's okay. And, and I'm thinking, this is not going to happen. I've just fucked this up. It's just not going to happen. And then, and he says, I might call you later. So when I get there, me and my date are just sitting there all night, just kind of waiting for Quentin to call. And then he doesn't call. <laughs> and then finally it happens. And it was just like, holy shit, you know, and. And it was the interview that you would want to have with Quentin, you know, because sometimes they can go bad. Sometimes people make him mad and yada, yada, or he can be unhappy. It was the perfect interview. And people said afterward, when are you going to interview him again? There's no need to interview him again. I have the one perfect interview. And I found that sometimes, I mean, I've interviewed four or 500 
famous people in my life. And I found that when you really enjoy somebody's work and you have a shitty experience with them, you never look at that stuff in the same way. You never enjoy it the same way. Right, right. Tarantino's work means so much to me that I don't really want to risk any kind of bad thing. Um, yeah, you hit, you hit he the. He was you, amazing. He was very giving. I'm the biggest fan. I love his work. I don't care. I love his work. I also write noir fiction, and he's been the biggest influence. Him and Elmore Leonard. Right. I mean, I, I love his work. Yeah, you hit, you hit, you hit the ball. You hit, you hit the home run. The first time up the bat with him, and I'm right. not gonna, I'm not gonna take another swig. I'm good. Right. I'm good. I'm gonna, I'm retiring from that part. <laughs> right. I, I, I completely get it. Um, now, uh, where can, uh, where can people find out more about you and and uh, the work you do, and where can they get the book? Um, the book is available. Uh, the easiest place always to get it is Amazon. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I have to say it's through Bear Manor Media, which a lot of those you're not going to generally find those in the bookstores. The 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 film book. Um, Genre has really changed in the 25 years that I've been writing. It's used to be they were everywhere, you know, and my earliest books were with Kensington and Chronicle Books, and they were everywhere. I'd go into, you know, Walmart. Hey, here's my book. And it was awesome. And that doesn't really happen anymore. And so people think I'll just read on the Internet. And even if it's wrong, that's all I need to know about that movie. And so, you know, but Bear Manor Media is great. It's just they're one of the, you know, these the ones that are left are mostly smaller publishers. Um, Amazon is always a good place or the Bear Manor Media website. I don't Got remember, it. you know, what the address is. Um, sure. We'll put it in the show notes. Well, books with them on everybody from Ed Wood to <laughs> Quentin <laughs> to Stephen King. Um, That's awesome. You know, I'm really proud of this book and I hope people will go out and read it. Not because of me, but just because it's a good story. You know, it's a good story. And Quentin, Quentin as usual, has a story to tell. As as he always does. Now I'm going to ask you probably the most the most difficult question you've ever had uh, about Quentin. Three of your favorite Quinn films. Pulp Fiction is always going to be my favorite. It's the one that I saw first, and it just knocked me on my ass. Oh, I guess kept going to see it over and over in the theater. I would mm-hmm. take everyone I could get to go see it. I'd be like, "You got to see this movie," and everyone around me was sick of hearing about it, sick of seeing it. But the neat thing was every time you'd see it with a different audience, the experience would be different because it's funny when you're with an audience. There are certain scenes where everybody will laugh and sometimes nobody will laugh. It's the exact same scene. So that's my number one. I got to tell you, number two, I think, is I didn't I got I was really disappointed when Jackie Brown first came out because it wasn't Mm -hmm. what we expected. But, man, I've come to love that movie. I think it is a masterpiece. I think it's because it's more quiet. It's more it's just not what we expected. I think it holds up. I think it looks better with every passing year. I think the performances are fucking amazing. Um, and yeah, you're Rob- seeing more and more people contend that say that it might actually be his best movie. And that may be true. Pulp will always be my favorite, but right. no, I mean, and, I- and then third okay, is true romance. Really? Even he didn't direct it. And really, true romance and Jackie Brown, they're they're neck and neck. Yeah, that's a, and for people who are young, because you and I are of similar vintage, uh, <laughs> so uh, people don't understand. You know, I saw Pulp multiple times in the theater. I was in film school when Pulp came out, so right. can you imagine? I was like down the street from my film school, and I went to the theater, and I remember seeing it the first time, and I remember falling, literally falling out of my chair, um, laughing with some of the things because the stuff that was being said on screen, it was. It was a nuclear bomb going off in cinema. It, it really, it really was. I mean, it was just so undeniable. Um, I've never experienced. I mean, I'd imagine it'd be like I'd imagine it'd be watching Clockwork Orange in the seventies or two thousand one in the sixties. Like that, you know, like it, it's undeniable what you're seeing in front of you, and it just doesn't. I don't think it's happened since. Pulp Fiction, maybe with people can argue that there's been other films, but n- I don't remember. I don't film. think in that way. I mean, all it, of a sudden you had all these people imitating it, and it oh really my God. the rise of indie film really was Quentin. It know? was. I mean, it, and I when I was talking to Richard about that, I asked him about that, and he's like, "Look, the independent film movement as we know it started pretty much with slacker, um, yeah. you know, slacker in '91, and and he and." It was all about the the 90s Sundance films. And that's when the market changed and there was the VHSs started making it. 
We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You know, a feasible option to, to make money with these things. Uh, Reservoir showed up and then Mariachi and Clerks and Brothers McMullen and all those, all those, every, every month there was a new guy. Right. It was a new filmmaker that popped up. But Pulp Fiction was the first indie that was a blockbuster. I mean, it was a blockbuster and it was a And they released it twice because if you remember when it got nominated for an Oscar, they brought it back out. Oh, of course. And it kept making money and money. It was a seven million. I mean, it wasn't. Go see it some more. (laughs) It was like a seven or eight million dollar film. So it wasn't a a huge budget. It was essentially an indie budget as as a studio goes because it was released by uh, by Miramax. But it made hundreds of millions of dollars. And you're right, like the the ripoffs that came off of Pep Fiction, there were so many of those movies. Everyone was trying to write like Quentin, but nobody could. Right. No one can. No one can right. write like him. There were so many ripoffs. It launched, I mean, it was in the zeitgeist almost immediately. Like, it's just like, I just remember before Pulp Fiction, after Pulp Fiction. It's kind of like there's certain movies that change cinema. And I felt like The Matrix, when The Matrix came out, it just completely changed action movies forever. It was like before The Matrix. And like every, so many people ripped that off. So many people try to right. imitate it. And Pulp was that as well. And there's there's like Star Wars is like that. There's certain movies that come along that just do that. If it hadn't been for Quentin and Pulp Fiction, I would have never written about film. I mean, I like movies like everybody. And I was still watching the big tentpole shitty movies and thinking they were just as good as everything else. You know, and I would I didn't start learning about film, studying about film, you know, really finding a passion for film until that movie. I walked out of that movie stunned. I went on opening night. If I'm not wrong, it was like, what, September? I don't know, like ninth or something, 1994, maybe it's 20th, something like that. And I walked out and it was just stunned. I couldn't believe this thing I'd just seen. And I knew something had changed inside of me, not only on the screen, but inside of me. And I and I just I, I thought I want to write about film. And that was that was it. I started finding film books right after that. That was, you know, when I thought, man, I want to write about film. And I'll, I'll leave you with a, a little story that I know about Quentin that I heard firsthand from someone. I don't know if you know this or not. Do you know the director, Sheldon Lectich? Who, who, Lenich, yeah, yeah Lenich, Lenich, yeah. Sheldon uh, back in the day, yeah. Bloodsport so guy, yeah. The Bloodsport he wrote he wrote Bloodsport and directed Lionheart and and right. stuff. Well, he know he knew Quentin. He was uh, he was the one I think from from my understanding he either introduced him to Lawrence or they they knew someone who knew it, but he he knew Quentin somehow. Seems like Scott Spiegel and Lawrence and uh, someone Spiegel and Sheldon were in the same circle and right and that's there was something there right. But but he told me a Quentin story and you might know this story, but um, he's like he was he was working on. Was it Lionheart? I don't know if it was on Lionheart or Rambo, but he was working uh, a pre-production in an office. And right next to him, he walked in the room and Quentin was there. And Quentin goes, oh my God, it's Sheldon Lectich. And he's like, holy cow, it's Sheldon. And then, he's just, and then of course, Quentin, because he has that encyclopedic knowledge of film, right. started nailing all his old films and stuff like that. And apparently Quentin was, he was a telemarketer on selling um he was upselling video stores around the country to buy more copies of certain films that were coming out that week like you need five copies instead of three of of you know assault of the killer bimbos i mean seriously you do need more and that was and i was like wow quentin was was cold calling you know video stores trying to upsell videos i gotta tell you for from now and forever probably one of the greatest experiences of my life talking film was at that film festival in in, uh, 99. I had a few minutes to just talk to Quentin about, we talked about gangster movies. Um, There was a movie called, he had a movie on there called The Debt Collector, or The Death Collector, that's it, The Death Collector. And it was an early movie with Joe Pesci and uh, Frank Vincent before they had done Scorsese movies. And we got to talk for a few minutes and, and he was just really nice and let his guard down and to hear him talk about movies, it's oh. amazing. And and also I asked him about, I had just seen The Apple, which is that famous movie that Cannon put out that was supposed to be so bad. And, and it was, it was awful. But I asked him about it and Quentin said, oh yeah, 
that was one of the only movies I've ever walked out of. So it was something that was so shitty. Quentin walked out and wow, he watches everything. Funny. And he watches everything. <laughs> right. And for the record, if you ever talk to Guillermo del Toro, he's just like Quentin. I mean, it's infectious. They both know, have an encyclopedic knowledge of really? film. I'd love to see those two guys talk about film. I think that would be amazing. I wouldn't even have to talk. I'd just sit back and watch that like a movie. No, when I was talking to Richard, it was the same thing. Richard has right. an encyclopedic knowledge of films. He was throwing out stuff that I'd either heard of in film school or I'd just never heard of in some film. I was like, what is going on? And I thought I was a cinephile to a certain extent, but they're at a whole other level. And I'm like, oh, I think Richard is probably up in the, uh, up in the same levels as uh, as Quentin is. But I didn't, I, I've, I've met, I've met Gwen, uh, Guillermo a couple times, uh, but I've never had the chance to really sit down and talk to him. But I've heard that he has an encyclopedic knowledge of film as well. It's insane. Um, but man, thank you so much for being on the show, uh, Andy. I appreciate it, brother. Um, thank you for writing the book and uh, and being the historian that we needed for this film. So at least now there's a record, a true record of what happened. Just so you know, I'm editing a third book on Quentin. Okay, what's, uh, what's it called? A, it's uh, called Pulp Cinema, and it's going to be a collection of uh, essays by different writers on different aspects of Quentin's films. And I'm doing that with Kieran uh, Fisher, who's a really talented writer from Australia. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. Well, well, we'll keep an eye out for that, man. But thank you, Andy, again so much. Uh, I appreciate you and, and all 46 plus books that you have written about cinema. So thank you, my friend. Hey, thank you. I want to thank Andy so much for not only coming on the show, but for writing the book and taking the time to create a record of what actually happened to Quentin Tarantino's first film, My Best Friend's Birthday. Thank you so much, Andy. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, including how to get a copy of the book, head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 306. And if you haven't already, please head over to screenwritingpodcast.com, subscribe, and leave a good review for the show. It really helps us out a lot. Thank you again so much for listening, guys. As always, keep on writing no matter what. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv.